You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Adam Mutasib. All right, I want to invite you, if you're not there already, to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. Like I said earlier, we love going through books of the Bible, verse by verse, and you know, every now and then you reach a section of scripture that you probably would never choose to preach. But we believe that God's word is authoritative, good, useful, uh, and beneficial in every way, and so we're going to preach it. And as I was looking at 1 Timothy 1, verses 8 through 11, and, and pondering this text, I thought of uh, a recent experience. I took my friend, uh, good friend Dan Mackett, uh, out to sushi uh, like a couple months ago. Dan actually, I don't, if you didn't know this, we're a three-year-old church plant. We just bought this building, and we run a co-working space uh, during the week, and Dan Mackett runs that co-working space. So I took him out to lunch. We went to get sushi, actually, right down the corner here at Sushi Avenue. Great spot. Good lunch special. Uh, free advertising because I, I know the chef and he's a good guy. Um, anyway, so I take him out to get sushi, and he's never had sushi before. In fact, he's gluten-free, which means he doesn't eat good food. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. We love you if you're gluten-free. We're just sorry that you have to do that. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so I went with him, Dan, and the guy never had sushi, and uh, my other friend is a, a professional chef, right? And so the professional chef as we're sitting at the restaurant, is like curating a special menu for Dan. And, you know, let's start you off with a California roll, you know, elementary version of sushi. And then we'll maybe spice it up a little bit with a spicy salmon roll or something like that. And so he gets like these different rolls for Dan. And the food arrives, and you know, it's a sushi plate. And the chef and I are talking for a moment. And before we know it, Dan takes the wasabi on the plate the whole thing, and puts it in his mouth. And he's like, <coughs> tears streaming down his face. He, he is coughing the entire meal. Like he's still tasting the wasabi, the whole meal. And it ruined sushi for him. He has yet to have sushi since that moment. He does not like sushi. And I was like, Dan, what are you doing? Why would you do that? He's like, I thought it was guacamole. Dan, you've never seemed more uncultured than you do in this, this moment right now. <laughs> anyway, uh, my point is, is that the wasabi, this portion of the plate that was meant to accentuate or point to the meal, sushi, Dan consumed it as if it was the meal, and it ruined the whole thing for him. And that's really similar to what's happening in this Ephesian church that Paul is writing to. The law, which is sort of like the wasabi of the gospel, which is meant to accentuate or to point to Christ, was being consumed as the main course. And the Ephesian church is coughing, spitting, and saying, we don't want to do this anymore. And Paul's like, you're not actually preaching Christianity. You're preaching religion. And I know for a fact that maybe many of you, you grew up with just wasabi, just the rules, just the legalism, just the guilt. And you may be here today, reluctantly, a friend may have dragged you, wanting nothing to do with that. Here's the good news for you this morning. Paul is like, we're not preaching to you the rules. 
we're preaching good news of Jesus Christ, of what he's already done. And that's what we're going to see today. What do we do with the wasabi? What do we do with the law? How does it accentuate the gospel for us? And three points. Number one, the law is good. Number two, the law is restraining. And number two, three, the law leads us to the gospel. Let's jump in. Number one, the law is good. Paul says, now we know that the law is good. Now, before we say why it's good, we should clarify, what is the law? Well, the law is quite simply the rules of the Old Testament, the first half of your Bible. All these rules and commands. And they come in three major categories. The civil law, the ceremonial law, and the moral law. The civil law were the daily living laws given to the nation of Israel at one time for a specific purpose that were to dictate how Israel was supposed to live as a people. Laws like when your neighbor's animal gets stuck in a pit on the Sabbath, what do you do? Or specific punishments for specific crimes. You may have uh, read Deuteronomy 10 through 11. Here's an example of a civil law. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. You shall not wear a cloth of wool and linen mixed together. These were laws that were given to set Israel aside from the rest of the nations of the earth. Like these are a different people who worship Yahweh, distinct from the rest of the nations. Now, the second category are the ceremonial laws, and these are the commands on how the nation was to worship Yahweh. Things like Sabbath regulations and temple sacrifices and ceremonial cleanliness. Like the, the rules that were like, go to the temple on this day, the Day of Atonement, and sacrifice this many animals at this time, and this high priest goes in this room and does these uh, rituals so sins can be forgiven. Or it's the do this and don't do this on the Sabbath, those types of rules. And these laws, which there are a lot of them, were given to show the seriousness of sin. Like, this is what has to happen for you to be in the room with the Holy God. You've got to be clean. You've got to have this many sacrifices. You have to do this and that. And it's also to show us the cost of reconciliation. And so, the book of Hebrews, what the entire book is about, is Jesus fulfilled the civil and ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. Here, essentially, Jesus in the New Covenant became the once-for-all sacrifice, so we no longer need a Day of Atonement. That's why you're not, you didn't come in here this morning with a goat ready to slit its throat to pay for your sins, because Jesus was already killed for us. Jesus became the true Sabbath rest. We don't need to work. We can just rest in what he did. Therefore, we don't need all these Sabbath regulations. This is why I'm not on your butt about don't watch football on Sundays or don't do this on Sundays, because we can just rest in Christ and be accepted. Faith in Jesus is what makes us clean on the inside before God. Therefore, we don't need all these cleanliness rituals. And now we can eat bacon. Praise God. Jim Gaffigan says bacon even sounds like applause when it's cooking. It's delicious. Jesus allows us to eat bacon. We can now wear mixed thread. You can go crazy at Abercrombie & Fitch if you want. I don't know if anyone still shops there. And why does the guy always have his shirt off at the entrance? I didn't say anyway. Like, come buy our clothes. We don't wear shirts. Okay, anyway. Uh, we, we can wear mixed threads because it's not our clothes that set us apart from the world. It's our love for God and our love for neighbor. You see, the new covenant replaces this older, lesser covenant. You guys ever have to do your taxes uh, without TurboTax on your own? You ever try and fill out a W-2 on your own? You're like trying to figure out, okay, this number goes here. And I'm so confused. And I did it wrong. And... All of these laws and rules and stipulations are just confusing me, and I just want to quit. 
Well, Jesus is like the great tax accountant. You just send him all the stuff, he takes care of it, and he says the check is in the mail. It's done. Jesus takes all of the rules, all the stipulations of the Old Covenant in the Old Testament, these civil and ceremonial laws, and says they all, he says in the Gospel of Matthew, pointed to me. They find their fulfillment in me. They find their end in me. And your righteousness is now given to you by me. And that's why Jesus says the New Covenant is so much better than the Old Covenant. He says it's like replacing that old college t-shirt you got for free that's lime green and has holes in it with a brand new suit. The New Covenant's like getting a brand new bottle of wine. It's better because we don't have to worry about the rules. We can just rest in Christ. So we can certainly learn more about God and his heart from these civil and ceremonial laws. You can read your Bible today and see, okay, God actually cares about neighbor because he told Israel to take care of their, each other's livestock. Or God really cares about our cleanliness because he wants them to do this on, on the Sabbath. You can learn about God through these laws, but they are no longer binding on us in the new covenant in Christ. So when someone, I'm sure you've had this happen in college perhaps if you're a Christian. When someone pulls out an Old Testament verse and says, well... I saw you eat lobster last week, and the Old Testament says you can't eat shellfish, so you're a hypocrite. You can say to them, well, buddy, you should probably read the rest of your Bible. Mark 7, Acts 15, the book of Romans, the book of Hebrews, and pretty much the entire New Testament is telling us that all of these laws are fulfilled in Jesus, and they no longer bind us. The law Paul is talking about here in 1 Timothy chapter 1 is not the civil and ceremonial law. He's really focusing on the moral law, this third character, category. And the moral law is the commands in the Old Testament given by God that are for all people at all times in all places. These are the Ten Commandments like honor your mother and father, have worship no other God beside me, do not murder, those types of rules. And these are unchanging and for all people because they reflect the very character and holiness of God. And like God never changes, his character and his, his commandments never change. His morals never change. And Paul says here, verse uh, 8, chapter 1, that the law, the moral law, is good. It's good for us. Why is the law good? Why is it a gift? I don't know about you, whenever I see a list of rules, I do not think, oh, what a great gift. I think, how do I break this? <laughs> I don't like this. But Paul says the law is a gift. These limits are a gift. Why? Because sometimes limits are there to help us. You know, a fish absorbs oxygen from the water. It does not get oxygen from the air. And so if you freed a fish onto the grass, it would soon not be free anymore. It would be dead. Because the limits are there to protect it. You see, real freedom is not restrictionless. Real freedom is finding the right restrictions. A train off the tracks is chaos. And Paul says here that the moral law is the right restrictions for us to have the most full society, full family, and full life. It's like a fish living in the water. That's true freedom. And they're for our good. Now, what is the good that Paul is talking about? How is the law specifically good? Three purposes of the law. Number one, the law restrains us from sin. Particularly, it restrains unbelievers from sin. The law shows us what sin is. Romans 7, Paul says, I wouldn't know what sin was if the law didn't exist. So we look at the Ten Commandments and say, okay, I don't do that. I'm a sinner. 
And this is the purpose of the law that Paul's going to camp out in in the next couple of verses. Second purpose of the law, reason it's good, it's, it reveals sin and then leads us to Christ. You see, every other world religion throws a book of rules at you and God sits on his throne down to you and says, impress me. What do you got? How much good can you do? How much bad can you not do? Only in the gospel does God say, here's the law, and the only purpose of the law is to point you to the fulfillment of the law, Jesus, who died in your place. You do nothing. You just receive everything. And by receiving him, he changes you, and then you want to do the law because you're now a child of God, and you want to live within your identity. The great reformer Martin Luther said that the law is a mighty hammer that breaks the self-righteousness of human beings down. For it shows them their sin, so that by the recognition of sin, they may be humbled, frightened, and worn down, and so may long for the grace and for the blessed offspring of Christ. You see, if you came in here strutting like, I got my stuff together. If I showed up before God, he would say, Ooh, come on in. No, you see, the law says, you have failed. In the book of James, it says, even if you break one iota of the law, you are guilty of breaking the whole law. There ain't no one here that's good. And that's why the law points us to the good one, Jesus. Following the law can't save you. It just leads you to the Savior. Number three reason the law is good is it provides instruction for the believer. You see, the Christian, for the Christian, the law is not a crushing hammer, but a divine guide. The law is like a spiritual tinkerbell that leads you in the way you're supposed to live. And so what we're finding here is that the Ephesian false teachers are creating chaos in this church because they are not using the law lawfully. For these reasons, they're using the law to crush the people in the church. Instead of taking the law and showing the Ephesian leaders, uh, believers how this leads to freedom in Christ, they're using the law to guilt people and to say, you're not good enough. Oh, you need to do this. Oh, you haven't done that enough. And what an ugly environment that would be. Imagine if I was up here and said, you guys aren't giving enough. You need to start. Imagine if I said, hey, you guys aren't serving enough. You need to start or else. That would be awkward and no one would like that. That's what's happening here. Instead, what Paul wants them to do is say, look at how much Christ has given you. Now, in response to his gift, would you consider, you don't have to, but would you consider giving back to him and to his church? That's what Paul wants, but that's not what they're doing. And so Paul corrects them, verse 9, and says that the law isn't so much for believers, but for unbelievers. That's point two, the law is restraining. Look at verse 9. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Paul's essentially here like, the law is good because it lets you know when you're tripping. A lot of you are too young for this. I'm too young for this. But I, I've heard that you used to be able to pump your gas and then pay for your gas after you pumped it. And there's probably like 10 people in this room that remember that. And we're so glad you're here. We need more of you. So if you remember that time, please keep coming. If you're younger, you may not have known that. Did you know they... You can't do that anymore, obviously. You have to pay, then you pump. Why? Because people would pump their gas and dip and not pay for it. And so a law was added to prevent sin. Do you know you used to be able to have an open alcoholic beverage in Baltimore City? And then Fell's Point happened. 
a bunch of shootings, and a bunch of chaos, and Baltimore City added a law to prevent sin. Paul is saying the law was given to restrain sinners, to show them where the line is. And he lists out 14 particular vices in verses 9 through 10 that describe the kind of people for whom the law was written. The kind of sins that need to be restrained. And he contrasts the, those vices with the one kind of person who is just for whom the law was not intended. And scholars know that there's a clear connection between this list and the Ten Commandments. Let's go through these briefly. Number one, Paul says the law was given for the lawless and disobedient. Lawless and disobedient are those who willfully ignore God's law and establish themselves as their own God. Disobedient here literally means not submissive. So if you're living in a way where you listen to your voice more than you listen to God's voice, that is lawless and disobedient. He says ungodly and sinners. Ungodly here means without reverence. This is willfully choosing disobedience over giving your life away to know and worship God. It's rolling your eyes and ignoring God's law. It's even coming here today expecting to receive something instead of, rather than coming this morning in a sense of reverence to give worship to God. The law was given for the unholy and profane. This is any kind of inappropriate behavior. It's desecrating the, the body that God has given you with violence or drunkenness or any kind of sexual morality instead of treating your body as a gift given to you by God to serve Him. Those who strike their fathers and mothers. Now, you notice there's a shift here. Paul moves from sins against God now to sins against neighbor. And obviously this means hitting, dishonoring, or even murdering your parents. I don't know what kind of crazy people were in this church, but they were killing their parents. But this can also be even disrespecting authority. The law was given for murderers. I don't know if there's any murderers in here. If there are, we're really glad you're here, and we hope to preach the gospel to you. But Jesus says that even if you hate someone in your heart, it's as if you murdered them. So if you are here right now sitting and you can think of a human being that you have bitterness against or unforgiveness against or just your heart wells up with disdain towards that person, Jesus says you're a murderer at heart. The law was given for the sexually immoral. This is the Greek word ponos. And it means any sexual activity outside of the marriage bed. So this can range from pornography, obviously it's the word pornos, to rubbing against your girlfriend, to even adultery. It's any way that your body gets excited sexually without, outside the confines of marriage. And you can really pretty easily tell when that's happening. Number seven, it lists, in the list is men who practice homosexuality. Now, this is a really hotly contested issue, and I want to give it the time it deserves, so I'm going to come back to that one. Number eight, enslavers. If you want to know what the Bible says about the slave trade, here you go. God condemns the kidnapping of human beings. Number nine, liars and perjurers. The law was given to prevent any form of lying or cheating. So whether that's a white lie or some shady form of sales that you're using to make more money, or even taking away golf strokes from your golf score. No one would ever do that, right? Lying. 
perjuring. And number 10, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Sound, uh, sound doctrine here is the Greek word hygienio, which is where we get the word hygiene. So anything that stands opposed to what is healthy, what, anything that is against what flows out of the good news of the gospel. Now, uh, most every American, you likely listening, would agree with the vast majority of this list. We should probably not kill or hit our parents. We should probably not lie or perjure. We should probably not murder people. But there is one that stands out. And you, when we read the text, you probably were like, oh, no. And that is homosexuality. There's a lot of controversy today on where God stands on homosexuality. And if you want to know where he stands, here it is. This is the Greek word arsenikotai, which is a morphology of two words, man and bed. Now, bed in the ancient Greek time period was a euphemism for sex. So it's literally men who have sex. And this is a unique word, and scholars believe Paul used this word because he's referencing Leviticus 18.22, which says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. So Paul is here clearly condemning sexual acts with anyone of the same gender. Now, I know there are people in this room that disagree with that or struggle with that or have pushback on that, and so I want to address some of those things. Here's some counter-arguments that you might have to this statement that homosexuality is a sin against God's law. Number one, a different word meaning. A lot of people argue that this word, arsenicotai, is not condemning homosexuality. Rather, it's condemning male prostitution or even male pedophilia. But quite simply, there is no words in the text, there's no context information, there's no evidence in the ancient world that Paul was referring to anything other than homosexuality. And no scholar worth their salt is actually going to look at this text and say, oh yeah, the Bible's 100% true and God's okay with homosexuality. You just can't do it. Now what most people do is they say, well, the Bible's wrong and homosexuality is okay. And that's a little bit more intellectually honest. But you cannot say the Bible is 100% true in the Word of God, but also homosexuality is okay. It just clearly does not say that. So it's not a different word meaning. Number two, uh, the other argument you often hear is mixed thread or shellfish. And I referenced this earlier. A lot of people will come to me, or you might have had this experience. They'll read from Leviticus or Deuteronomy and say, see, the Bible says don't eat shellfish. Don't, don't wear clothes of, of mixed uh, thread. See, you don't obey all the rules in the Bible, so why can't I love who I want to love? And to which we would say, you need to read the rest of your Bible. You see, the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, and even Jesus himself in the Gospels in the book of Matthew says that the civil and ceremonial laws, these laws that we're refer you're referencing, have been fulfilled. But the moral law still applies. And Paul is here clarifying what the moral law is. Jesus sent Paul to speak his word, and here we are in the New Testament. Paul is saying homosexuality is against the moral law. It goes against God's created order, as a, uh, referencing Genesis 2. Number three reason uh, you might oppose what, I, what is being presented here. I often hear this argument. I actually was hanging out with a, a lesbian woman a couple weeks ago, and she was awesome. We had a great conversation, and she said this to me when I was talking to her about this and just sharing what the scripture said. She said, how can loving someone be wrong? I'm not hurting anyone. 
I just want to love this person. And I honestly think that's a really strong emotional argument. We are all about love. Jesus says the whole law can be boiled down into love. But what I told her and what I would tell you is that disobeying God is never loving to anyone. Leading someone to disobedience against God's created order is not a loving thing to do. It's a delusional thing to do. Number four reason that you might be opposed to this is, I hear this said all the time, this is just who I am. I was born this way. Lady Gaga sang it, and I believe it. And the Bible agrees with that statement, friend. You were born that way. You and I inherited the guilt of Adam. And now we desire sin. I desire sin, you desire sin. And so we are called to deny ourselves and to follow Christ. And he gives us the power and pattern to repent of our sin and to follow his will. Rosaria Butterfield, who is a former women's studies professor at Syracuse University, she was a lesbian married to another woman. She repented of her sin, turned to Christ, and abandoned the gay lifestyle. And this is what she said. She said, Adam's fall rendered my deep and primal feelings untrustworthy and untrue. Translation, you can't trust your heart. You know that Disney philosophy, just follow your heart? The Bible says the exact opposite. Your heart is wicked. And it leads to chaos. And that's why this world is the way it is right now. Rather, follow God. Establish the right limits for yourself so you can truly thrive. Sam Albury, another Christian writer who has same-sex attraction, who is following Jesus today, he says, Desires for things God has forgiven are a reflection of how sin has distorted me, not how God has made me. If you would say you have same-sex attraction and you're gay, I just want to say to you that your primary identity as a human being is not your sexual preference. Who you are is not boiled down simply to who you like sleeping with. God says who you are is his child. He loves you as you are. He made you. Sin has distorted your inner being. And he says, follow me so you can truly flourish. And there is a joy and a peace and a purpose that your creator can provide for you that he or she, that man or that woman will never be able to give to you. And you will be constantly looking for that person to satisfy with a deep hole in your heart and you will be disappointed until you die. And God says, only I can fulfill that hole. And to come to Christ today does not mean that you will stop having gay desires. If you come to Christ today, you may still feel gay in your, in your heart and in your mind. But Jesus promises to give you all the joy and all the power needed to conform to his will. We are not trying to convert you out of homosexuality. We're trying to convert you out of unbelief in Jesus. We're not trying to sell you heterosexuality. We're not trying to get you a wife or a husband. We're trying to get you to follow Jesus. And here's what I would say to you. If you're living a gay lifestyle right now, if you're gay affirming, or if you have close friends who are gay, the first thing I want to say to anyone who's, who's a homosexual in our church right now, and there are many people who, who would openly say this, part of our church, first thing I want to tell you is that we freaking love you. We love you. You need to hear that because you don't hear it enough. Not who you can become. We don't like your potential. We like you as you are right now. And you have not committed some super sin. You have disobeyed God's law just like all of us, just like the pastor, 
Notice homosexuality in this list of vices is listed with all other forms of sexual immorality. So the guy sleeping in the same bed with his girlfriend or the girl looking at porn are at the same place at the foot of the cross, guilty by the law, in need of a savior. And I find it so frustrating. You see all these legalists outside gay pride parades holding signs saying gays are going to hell. But you never see a group of protesters with a megaphone protesting pornography. And pornography is much more of a sinful epidemic decaying our culture, fueling rape culture, fueling sex trafficking. It's hurting our society way more than homosexuality is. Yeah, and I, I never see a stop looking at porn sign. In fact, I see other people poo-pooing it and saying, oh, it's fine, it's, it's not hurting anyone. You see, the point of Paul's list here, he doesn't have homosexuality in bold. He doesn't have an exclamation point. He's saying that the guy with his pants down in his college dorm room is just as guilty as the guy walking in the gay pride parade. And no one is guilt-free. We are all in need of Christ. And so if you have same-sex attraction today, welcome to this group of fellow messy sinners who have sexual lust. And like we're doing, we want to invite you to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow King Jesus. And if you're same-sex attracted, you are not ugly to God. You are not a mistake. You are His creation, and He loves you. And we all have sinful urges. We are fighting day by day. My desire for lust is just as evil as yours. And my hope for redemption in Christ is just as available as it is for you. Second thing, not only do we love you, but we love you enough to show you God's word. If you have friends or family members who are gay, which I'm certain you do, coworkers or something, you are not loving anyone by disregarding the word of God. In fact, you're very much unloving them. You see, God is calling us to so greatly love others that we do not desire for them anything that might separate them from God. And so here's what I want to challenge you to do. If someone you know and love comes out as gay, the first thing that they need to hear, the first thing that comes out of your mouth better be, I love you and I'm not going anywhere. You're family. You're my friend. And that's not going to change based on your performance. We affirm that kind of love, this covenantal love. We don't have this contractual love where you've got to do these things for me to love you. No. No matter what you decide, I'm here. But that love also needs to lead to the truth. And we are called to point people to the word of God. And so if you are a straight Christian, putting a gay pride flag on your social media post, are affirming people's decision to run away from God. You are not loving them. You are sinning against God and hurting them. And they will come to you on the day of judgment and say, what is your problem? And if you identify as gay and you're struggling right now with this text, which I, I can't imagine how difficult it is to hear this. This must be earth shattering and, and shocking. And I've had moments like this in my life where I disagreed completely with the Bible and I had to come to a decision. 
Here's the question I would ask you if you're gay and struggling with this. Are you ready? This is the most important question I'm going to ask you today. If you knew for a fact, without any doubt, that homosexuality was a sin, would you repent today and surrender to the will of God? If you knew for a fact God somehow revealed to you it was wrong, would you repent today and surrender to God? And if your answer to that question is no, then this is no longer a dialogue. You've already made up your mind. There's not much more to talk about. And you can't call yourself a Christian because by your own admission, you are your own God. God is not your God. And you will not be condemned by God because you are gay. You will be condemned by God because you're proud. And you refuse to submit to his will. And God says, fine, have it your way. And that leads to separation from him for eternity. And if the answer to that question is, yes, if I knew it was wrong, if this is really what the Bible is saying, I would, it would be the hardest thing I ever did, but I would submit to God's will and follow him. Then I want to challenge you to get alone with this text and to ask the Spirit of God to speak to you and to conform your will into the, the will of Christ and to ask Jesus for the power to align yourself with his word and watch what he does. And here's the good news. This is my last point, that the law leads us to the gospel. He says, whatever is contrary to sound doctrine, verse 11, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. What a great verse. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. You see, God's glory has been revealed in God's gospel. All of us are lawbreakers. No one has fulfilled the law perfectly. Everyone can look at this list and say, guilty. And this list of laws does nothing for us but show us our guilt. The law does not make us right. It does not motivate us. In fact, it usually does the opposite. The law does not say, here's the standard, meet it. God knew that. The law is simply there to alert us to the fact that we can never achieve righteousness on our own. The law was given to us to point us to Christ, to his righteousness in our place. And so if you're an unbeliever here right now, this morning, you will not be rejected by God because you are living in disobedience to the law. You will not be rejected by God because you are not like us spiritual Christians. You will not be rejected by God because you don't ever go to church. Following the law has nothing to do with whether you're accepted or rejected by God. But that's what these false teachers were teaching. You've got to perform and then God will love you. They were amening the law. They were saying, follow these rules and God will be pleased with you. Amen, amen. No, the law really merely reveals sin. It proves you a sinner. And it condemns you a sinner. And it escorts you to the substitute who saves sinners. Galatians 3 says that the law was, is our tutor that leads us to Christ. The law can't do anything but say, you're guilty and you need him. The other day I got an Amazon package with a hole in it. And I wanted to get a reimbursement. And I go on Amazon help and I'm like, need help reimbursement. And all I get is a stupid computer. And I'm like, what do I freaking need to type to talk to a human being who can give me my money back? Give me money back. 
help me, no computer. And I'm like, whatever I can do, give me the computer, a human being. And finally, this stupid computer, Jeff Bezos, give me some actual human beings, lead me to an assistant. And what does the assistant do right away? Here's your $30 back. That's what the law does. All I can do is compute you and send you to the person who can actually help you. And so as we read the law, we, we can be burdened by it. We can be broken by it. We can weep over it because we see how much we fail. But then as quickly as we can, we run to Christ who hangs on the cross and says, I take all of your law breaking. And no matter how screwed up you are today, guess what? Jesus says, I want you right now as you are. And no matter how screwed up your life is today, Christian, no matter how, how far joy feels from you right now, how, no matter how far peace feels from you right now, no matter how far purpose feels from you right now, guess what? The greatest thing that ever could happen has happened to you. You were guilty. You were on death row. And you have been substituted with a great Savior. And no one can snatch that joy from you. And hear me today, what we are presenting to you is not the law. It's not the rules. It's not the do's and the don'ts. We present to you the glory of the gospel of the blessed God, a Savior who replaced us. And we say, God, we throw ourselves on your mercy. Only you give us righteousness. You make us children of God, and now we want to become like you. This is why we sing. This is why we dance. This is why we're a happy people. Because every other religion in the world says, show up on Sunday and we'll give you more rules that you need to follow. But we're saying, show up on Sunday because it's been done and we get to celebrate. And if you're gay or straight, a murderer, or never hurt anyone in your life, regardless, you need Christ today. Come to him. And we thank God for the law. Because it shows us how sweet Jesus is. That he lived every moment of his life perfectly obeying every command. He lived a life that you and I could not live. And he died the death we deserved. Let's go to the table and celebrate that Savior, shall we? Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we recognize that all of us are wicked. Whether we identify as gay or straight, whether we go to church or we don't go to church, each of us, guilty, before the foot of the cross. Each of us in our own way, broken some form of the law. And so we say, God, we need Jesus. The son that you sent to die in our place. And Lord, if there's anyone far from God right now, I pray that they would come humbly to Christ. That the law, like a mighty hammer, would break down their self-righteousness and to cause them to fall before the face of Christ and say, God, I need you. And if there's, any uh, if there's any believer living in pride right now, trying to prove themselves by obeying rules, by comparing themselves to other Christians, help them to repent. Help them to rest in what Jesus already did, rather than trying to prove themselves through what they can do. And may our joy in the finished work of Christ lead us into obedience of the moral law. May this church be holy and set apart, living in alignment with your word. We need your help. We need spirit. You to come in and change us to do that. And we'll celebrate along the way as you change us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find other messages or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church Podcast.